Tell us a little bit about what you saw and, and, and being able to relay that message to Cora when you watched Kimbrell pitch and, and kind of help out so he wasn't uh, tipping his pitches. So tipping pitches, we hear about it all the time. People at home understand what tipping pitches is all about. It's amazing. Man. And that's remarkable. Alex, because we got so much news in the past week, I want to start this podcast with something that has nothing to do with any of that news. As we are as we are wont to do. Precisely. Yeah. I want to start this podcast with a rant about the labor dynamics of MLB the show. <sighs> Great. Okay, What's I'm going gonna run, I'm there? gonna I'm gonna run to the bathroom. Um, do your do your stop, thing. Stop. Stop. Stay here with me. I need okay, your help. Okay. 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 Because you've noticed these things as well too. You've tweeted about it from the Tipping Pitches account, just as I have. Number one, all the teams in MLB the Show wrote to the show buy out your RBers for yes. like market value. Number mm-hmm. one, that never happens in real life. Number two, when you're in the minors, you're making like millions of dollars in MLB the Show. Yeah. That never happens. Yeah, they give you an, an actual living wage. Shocking. <laughs> and then number three, you the max average annual value that you can make in a contract. If you become like a superstar, you win the Cy Young, you win MVP or whatever, you're making max dollars. It's $31 million per year. That seems a little outdated to me. I don't know if it's different in MLB The Show 20. You and I are playing 19. Like the bargain hunters we are. well what's interesting about all that is that obviously every single aspect of this video game is researched and tested and tweaked to be as close to major league baseball as possible right down to to you know the degree of a guy's elbow you know rotation when he's you know swinging the bat like yeah. All of this shit is figured So They make professional baseball players come into a studio and put those dots all over them, those mocap dots, and swing a bat. That's so how they get it to look like that. It, that feels like a somewhat intentional choice to me. You know, It like, can't be anything else. It can't be, it can't be anything else. Based on how specific the game is about everything else, I think that MLB, Major League Baseball, was like just... Just slide the scales a little bit. Make it seem like we're treating the players a little bit better than we are. Because otherwise, maybe they wouldn't have given their approval for all of their copyright and licensing information. That's what I think. I think Rob Manfred came in at the last second and was like $31 million max AAV. Pay minor leaguers multiple million dollars of fake money per year. Or is there... It's an, propaganda, an intern, Alex. And, or, 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 hear me out. Is there an intern at Sony... Changing uh, you know, the game yeah, at the last San second. Diego studio who's going in and is like, no, this shit's fucked up. I want to, I, we need to subtly remind players of this game that something is amiss in major league baseball. You know, we want viewers to notice that this is not what baseball's financial system looks like. And a better world is truly possible. And we're going to show people that world through MLB The Show. Yes. Which is reality for a lot of people. It really is. Yes. That's praxis, baby. Making your MLB The Show labor landscape more reasonable 
more fair. What would really be practice would be if that intern went in there and, and revealed what like the revenues of each team were. <laughs> you got to <laughs> peek at the books, you know, look behind the curtain. Yes, absolutely. Do the get a little get a little data data dump going, you know, just like whatever MLB faxed over, just post it on Reddit. Yeah, on Reddit, on or email doc, it to doc us. You cloud or whatever, wherever. Yeah, drop tipping us. We got a tipping pitches pot at gmail dot com. Let us see those. We got no. We need a. We need a more secure. Uh, you know, hit us up on Signal. Uh, what is our what's our PGP key? Or just call our voicemail at <laughs> 785-422-5881 and read off the spreadsheet. That'll do. <laughs> that will do. Um Alex, we have so much to get to. But last thing on MLB the show is that though I don't care, because when you, you get a contract offer from a team at MLB the show. You're like, this is fake money. Why should I care how much money I make? And that's how I react, at least. I'm like, sure, whatever. Usually, I would think that I would just sign it right away. But then I think about it, and I'm like, I have something to prove here. You know, I want to take this fictional zeros and ones owner for all their fucking worth. I'm playing for the Mets. Yeah. I'm playing for Steve Cohen right now. I know that he has $14 billion. I don't care that he just lost $300 fake million dollars on the stock market within the context of MLB The Show. I want my money, dog. I yes. want all of my money. So I signed an above market value extension to buy out my Arbeers that would come up right when I turned 26 so that I could get another big contract for eight more years and then I could get one more contract after that. That's how it's done. That's how it's done. Back up the Brinks truck, Steve. Of zeros and ones. <laughs> I mean, this is, a, it's interesting um, juxtaposing this with a game like out of the park baseball the uh i guess gm simulator uh that you can play uh, on your computer because that one is like down to the decimal point exactly what major league baseball finances are look like in part because you're playing like a gm and so i i mean first of all there are tons of nerds out there like myself who would be totally down to just like play around with this shit See what you can see. What you can do. See how. See if you can just trade for Mike Trout. Because why not? Um, see how many wages you could suppress. Really, though. I mean, <laughs> yes, kind of. I mean, you play out of the park once, and you're like, hmm. Billy Bean was they, right. I see why the A's would have traded Chris Davis in this situation. I get it. Oh man, we're all just waiting to sell out. You know, we're all just waiting to sell out. Speaking of tipping pitches, is brought to you this week by. Shell, <laughs> Exxon Mobil. <laughs> Just kidding. Okay, we have a ton to talk about this week. We also have a wonderful conversation with Jen Ramos, former guest of this pod, friend of the pod, wonderful member of the R and D team over at Baseball Prospectus. Um, before we get to all of that fun stuff, I am Bobby Wagner. I'm Alex Basley, and you are listening to Tipping Pitches. Alex, it's the inaugural edition of Open Season. Last week, we told listeners to call into our show. We shared the link. We shared the number on Twitter. We shared the number on air. The number is 785-422-5881, where you can call in, leave a voicemail, complain about your owner, 
complain about baseball media, complain about how your team just cut a player that you like, talk about how much you're appreciative of your team, whatever it might be. Um, and we would play it on the podcast and we would talk you through it. So that's what we're going to do. Are you ready? I am so, so ready because sometimes it feels like you and I are just sitting here yelling back and forth over, over zoom. And, uh, you know, these are our, for, for an episode for a few minutes, our honorary co-hosts. So, our compadres, uh, our compadres, our, uh, our comrades in the fight to nationalize our national, national pastime. Okay, here we go. First voicemail. Hi, my name is Chris. I am a Cubs fan, and I have a short and incomplete list of egregious things the Ricketts have done to the Cubs and to the Cubs fan base. First, decided one-and-done World Series wins was good enough, yanked Chris Bryant around through service time manipulation, let John Lester, the greatest free agent signing in Cubs history, walk, let Kyle Schwarber, the legend, walk, then decided to, quote, free up payroll after letting Lester and Schwarber sign completely affordable deals with D.C., gave noted domestic abuser Addison fucking Russell 15 second chances, traded for noted domestic abuser Aurobus Chapman, acquired notable terrible person Daniel Murphy, allowed Pedro Stroke to walk for no reason, allowed Dexter Fowler to walk for no reason, did not give Ben Zobrist the send-off that he deserved, Gave a bunch of money to Trump, signed a deal with noted terrible corporation Sinclair Broadcasting uh, for their own dumb network, completely screwed up the marquee network rollout, made Lennon JD wear suits on TV in billion-degree weather, and traded away a number of great players, including Dylan Cease, Hugh Darvish, Victor Caratini, Tommy Lasella, Gleyber Torres, Eloy Jimenez, and Mike Montgomery. The Rickets have a lot to, you know, reckon for and... We have a lot to hold them accountable for as Cubs fans because they've completely screwed up the organization in the last five years, and we have bones to pick with them. All right. Thank you so much for your time. I, I, I wish Is every I wish message going to be like this? Because if so, we don't even need to respond. <laughs> I wish the listeners could have seen the, the smile just creeping across my face as we watch this because it is cathartic to hear people unleash their own catharsis. Kristen, thank you for this. Our our heart goes out to you because I cannot imagine what it is like to be a Cubs fan in 2021. A couple of things that stuck out to me from this message. Number one, reading off the fact that they let Dylan Cease go before you, Darvish. Amazing. Number two, <laughs> uh, that laundry list of players that they have either traded away or let walk is very alarming as we look around the landscape of who is the superstar in baseball. Um, number three, I'm, I'm so glad that Cubs fans actually feel the same way that I feel about how the Cubs have handled their franchise since 2016 in that they've completely dismantled it and they've just gotten a pass because they broke this crazy curse that took them over a hundred years to break. And then number four, I don't know enough about Cubs free agent signing history to say whether or not Lester is the greatest Cubs free agent signing in the history of their franchise, but it seems like it might not be. <laughs> oh, I really, I, cause I was going to say, I think it was when Lester walked, there was a lot of sentiment saying he has been among the better 
free agent signings in a while. Like, I mean, I get right. Probably not from a numbers perspective, I guess, which is the way that it, it initially like registers in my head. But Maybe, I guess from but, an intangible kind of like, perspective and yeah, bringing and that like world a personality, series, yeah, in a in a on the level of how many beers did this guy buy people in the middle of a pandemic exactly. to send exactly. it off exactly to send off the city? Yeah, of course. Let's talk. Let's talk Kristen through it, though, Alex. What What is your advice? Because this is this is a a magnum opus of a voicemail that we're starting out here with, with all of these things that the Cubs have done. Some of them are just on field stuff. Some of them are very serious off field things. Like she mentions Trump. She mentions Addison Russell. She mentions Aroldis Chapman. She mentions Daniel Murphy. So. <laughs> Like we promised, talk her through it. Guaranteed rate field is about eight miles south of Wrigley Field. So I'm just going to start there. I'm not going to add any more context to that. Uh, I, I just want to, I just, you know, if we're talking trajectories of franchises. Wow. Um, wow. I'm, I, I have come around and I'm all for switching allegiances when your uh, team spurns you. 100%. Apart from that, if she doesn't want to change teams. <laughs> I mean, this is this is the the kind of reaction that I think you and I have been touting over the last few years and that we are maybe seeing baseball go um the way of, which is standing players instead of organizations, right? Like yeah. I Similarly, I'm I'm an Oakland A's fan, but repeatedly, time and time again, the franchise shows that they actually don't really care that much about investing in relationships, investing in players, uh, investing in people, the people that support that franchise. So you know, I'm like, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna stand Chris Davis, and then when they trade him, I'm gonna stand Elvis Andrus. I'm going to I'm going to wear that jersey with pride. Yeah. But uh I don't know. I think it starts with this with not taking their their bullshit. And I I feel very proud uh that that Kristen is is out there banging the drums uh for for Cubs fans and and invoking that revolt because that's what we need really is galvanizing more fans of your own team to step up and say the shit is not acceptable. I completely agree. And what I'll say is many times over the course of this podcast, we have felt like billionaires are incapable of shame. And I think that's true still to a certain extent. However, as we progress on in the world that we live in, a significant portion of fans having this view, having this critical lens on franchises actually can change how ownership behaves. And maybe that's naively optimistic of me to think something like that. But if you have enough fans who get together and say, this is unacceptable, I will stop buying tickets. Or this is unacceptable, I will stop watching games. Or I will cut my cable to Sinclair Broadcasting. That's the stuff that the Rickets actually care about. That's the language that they traffic in is... Is this, am I disaffecting this fan enough to the point where they're not going to spend their money or they're going to be so jaded over the behavior of our franchise 
that it's going to affect the bottom line in the end. And I think that like if enough people felt this way about the Cubs, it would be a, a strong enough stench that it might hurt their bottom line. And so that doesn't necessarily mean give up your fandom because certainly I have not given up my fandom with the Mets despite the fact that they've stumbled over their franchises for franchise for the better part of three decades in both silly and serious ways. But I don't know. Calling this shit out, I think, actually matters because it puts pressure on different levers of the organization, of the PR department, of the marketing department, of the social media department, which, as we know, as we've talked about on this podcast a million times, is a big element of how the Cubs make so much money is their Cubs Incorporated. That's what Michael Bauman said not not three weeks ago on this podcast is like they're selling the brand and they're putting it on Wrigleyville buildings and they're putting it on, you know, cable packages and they're putting it on merchandise and all of that other stuff. And so if you are willing to say, hey, all of this stuff is not okay, then maybe they're willing to consider, oh, this might actually affect our brand. That would be my catharsis for you, Kristen. So thank you for calling in. Yeah. All right. Should we see what else is uh, is on the line? Yes. Hey, guys. So I'll try to keep this short and hope this is played after a 45-minute mark. But as a leftist baseball fan in Cincinnati, I cannot describe how fucking amazing it is that in the same offseason, the Reds released Trevor Bauer or got rid of him. Didn't resign him. Whatever. The city is now going to receive Aaron Dolan and Sean Doolittle in return. Can we just take a minute to appreciate this? That's all. Thank you. Amazing point. Amazing point. Yes. And I will say, 100%. it's not like, if you're a listener calling into the show, you can say the name before the 45-minute mark. The 45-minute the rule only applies to me and Alex. So thank you for saying the name so we don't <laughs> have to. Number one. Number two, congratulations to Sean Doolittle. I wrote this down in my notes that we were going to congratulate Sean Doolittle on this pod, but our, this listener did it for us. It's um, That's a win-win. A win-win for Reds fans. Yeah, Reds fans having a having a good off season. Uh huh. Staying staying true to their name, Reds. So now, please trade Sonny Gray to the Mets. Thank you. Well. <laughs> um. Okay. Before uh, before we move on, we, we have we have one last voicemail, and thank you to everybody who called. Um, we are we don't have enough time because we had guests this pod. We don't have enough time to get to everybody's voicemails, but we will roll them over into next week. So if you did call. We are going to play your voicemail on the pod and we are going to talk you through it in the next open season that we do. Um, but last thing on Doolittle is I read this piece in the Washington Post about him uh, trying to choose between whether or not he was going to try to resign with the Nationals or whether he was going to try to start with a blank slate and go to Cincinnati. And I just got to say, like, it's really amazing. I mean, I know Sean's a friend of the pod and he's been on multiple times, but it's really amazing to have someone like this who's this considerate of the city that he lives in and the fan base that he interacts with to just so earnestly care about how it's going to affect the community that he's like built and grown into in DC, him and Aaron both. And to have him in another city, I'm so happy for Reds fans that they get to hang out with this dude all year, independent of how well he pitches on the field or not. Because just having that guy in your city as a member of that team, being as outspoken as he is, um, is it's got to be a really cool feeling. So I was rooting for the Mets to sign him, but I know that he wasn't going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm uh, the the first thing that I did when I saw uh, that the 
Red to find him was text my mom and exclaim that him and Sonny Gray are united. So oh, that's true. So that's, true. That brings me joy. He said that in that piece that he he talked to Sonny, his friend Sonny, yeah, about sure. whether or not he should come to Cincinnati. Yeah. So all right, I guess I'm watching a bunch more Reds games this year. I'm not mad about it. You don't need a better reason other than those two guys, but then also you get Joey Votto. So yeah, right. That's pretty cool. <laughs> all right. Uh, Last voicemail. Hey, what's up, guys? First time, long time, yada, yada. Had to get that out of the way. Uh, I'm not calling in today because my owner sucks, even though he probably does, or they do. I guess the Blue Jays have a consortium, uh, which is about as evil as it sounds. But fortunately for me, they're spending money this offseason, which, you know. But I'm calling in today to complain about the baseball media at large, who are full of owner... Bootlicking? Bootlickers? Bootlickers. So, I listen to a lot of podcasts, uh, as my job affords me the time to do so, and I was listening to a, a podcast involving a certain semi-podcast host and, uh, like the, uh, baseball newsbreaker, uh, not gonna name any names, figure it out, and uh, the podcast host started off by saying, as he always does in matters like this, and saying, well, you know, I'm not pro-owner, but, which always means that you're pro-owner anyways, and proceeded to rattle off a whole bunch of pro-owner takes that I was expecting from this individual. Uh, but then the, uh, the baseball newsbreaker uh, proceeded to uh, inform me uh, to my shock, that the Rockies had no choice but to trade Nolan Arenado for pennies on the dollar because, uh, you know, he, he forced his way out and it was an NBA-like trade. And goodness me, whatever could they do? How about spending money to keep uh, one of the five, ten best players in baseball on your team uh, by surrounding him with actual talent? You know, the Rockies were good. The Rockies were good, like, less than two years ago. And then... Uh, apparently the big bad Dodgers were just so scary that they packed it in and decided that, no, we can't continue to do this. So we're not going to spend money despite having a generational third baseman. And uh, I'm just mad about how baseball media, the mainstream baseball media, has decided that it's totally fine to do this. We're just fine with people packing it in and not spending money and tanking. Uh, man, it, it, sports are a public trust, and if you own a sports team, if you've made an investment to own a sports team, and you're, you know, benefiting from all these, uh, you know, antitrust exemptions and, and and public money, then you should spend some of your own money to make sure that people in the city that cheer for that team, fans of that team, aren't miserable because you're going to spend the next ten years. Uh, drafting and developing. Um, cosign, cosign everything that he said there. <laughs> we gotta, we have to uh, extend our our limit on uh, on voicemail lengths because people uh, people have some things to get off their chest. Yes, is, is what I'm is what I'm learning. Let's hone in here on a couple things that that uh, that were included in that voicemail. Number one, the Arenado trade, which. The collective 
softening by the baseball media of the Arenado trade has been frustrating, if not surprising, in the last week and a half. I think there are a good handful of people who are like confounded by it, but then at the same token, who normalize it by saying, well, Arenado wasn't happy, and this is just how baseball teams are operating now. And then they cite the Mookie Betts trade, and then they cite the Francisco Lindor trade. As if this is normal, you know? And it's really not normal, given that what the Rockies are getting back is nothing, and they're choosing to include $50 million back in the deal. In this case, the details really matter. So I sympathize with this listener specifically in that category. And, you know, the Rockies owner, Dick Monfort, and Jeff Jeff Breidich, their GM, had a press conference last Tuesday basically giving their explanation for the Arenado trade to a very confounded baseball public. And it was a lot of bullshit. Like, and it, and it was a lot of bullshit unchecked because they're saying we would have loved to keep Nolan, but the relationship had soured and we wanted to grant his wish of playing on a different team. And it's like, okay, well, what is the part that you're leaving out here? Oh, the, the part is why did the relationship sour? And just now in this voicemail, this Blue Jays fan can identify why the relationship soured. It's because you didn't spend to build around him like you promised to when you signed him to this contract. There's this quote from Jeff Breidich from 20, February 2019 when the Rockies re-signed Arenado, where he says, we're so happy to re-sign him. And forgive me, I don't have the quote in front of me, but I, I was reading it after that press conference where he says, you know, we're so happy to have re-signed him, but this is a lot of money and we'll have to reevaluate where the team is at in three years. This is on the day of the signing. He's saying we're going to have to reevaluate our financial commitment and viability in the in three years. And that was extremely pessimistic. And they didn't even make it to that benchmark. They traded him one year later. So you would talk we talk about the phrase bad faith a lot. That seems like pretty bad faith operation from a baseball front office who in theory was doing right by their fans and doing right by their superstar and extending him for a great contract to keep him in Colorado forever. Yeah. Although Bobby, have you considered the fact that some baseball insiders uh, were told that the Rockies didn't really have a choice because that I want to point out that that is being left out of the conversation. Jeez. in, in as we talk about this on this podcast, um, did I leave that out? I, it, it makes me um, think of the uh, of the Onion article in f- back in like two thousand three or something like that, where mm-hmm. the the uh, the opinion column, the point counterpoint, that is like uh, the Iraq War will uh, cost uh, trillions of dollars and destabilize the Middle East for decades to come. Versus, no, it won't. <laughs> Feels like what we're uh, what we're up against here. <laughs> like, I I don't know how how you can square anything that comes out of ownership's mouth with the the actions that they actually take. They make it, I mean, they make it easier than ever to see through their bullshit. So I guess I I have to give it to them for that. At least uh, it's. It's easy to tell where their interests lie. Uh, I also want to rewind a bit um, and just note that, um, yes, consortium, a consortium of owners is 100% just as evil as it sounds. 
if not the more I, evil, if not more evil, the fact that you have a a handful of investors slash owners whose names you may or may not really know, um, calling the shots for your baseball team, that shit sucks, man. So my well, and my heart goes out to you. And it's even weirder because Rogers Communications is just a big ass company. They're like a they're like a telecom company in Canada. It would be like if Spectrum bought the Dodgers. <laughs> There's so many conflicts of interest there. But once again, I appreciate them laying it out for like I almost would would respect more if one person came in and said, "I'm going to buy this baseball team, and I'm also going to buy the uh, the means of production and the means of distribution." And uh, I mean, this is do you want to talk Chicago Cubs? So like, this is the way things are headed. So uh, I don't know. Call in to uh, make sure to hit our line at seven eight five four two two. 5881, if your owner is considering a consortium. Owner considering a consortium? Have you been wronged by the (laughs) owner of your favorite baseball team? (laughs) Call Baisley and Wagner. (laughs) Um, Okay, the other element that I wanted to hone in on in this voicemail, and this will transition us into our next segment, where I want to talk about right after the podcast last week, you know, we mentioned it at the end of the show, that MLB had come to the MLBPA and given them a proposal for the 2021 baseball season, which when you boil it down, basically would come out to be that there would be a universal DH in 2021. There would be expanded playoffs as there was last season. And there would be 154 games with the full 162 salary game salary uh, given to each player and the season would start one month later. Those are the important details. Now where it gets a little hairy, Alex is the back and forth around this proposal, which was reported on largely from a sympathetic owner's perspective from the reporters who did write about it and tweet about it. The, the mainstream baseball newsbreaker reporters. Um, Let's just lay out the case for why the owners would want this package and let's lay out the case for why the players would immediately reject it. The owners would want this because expanded playoffs means a lot more revenue. The more playoff games you broadcast, the more money those broadcast channels have to give to the baseball teams in order to broadcast the game. It's on a game-by-game basis. So the more games, more money. The players don't get that money. They get their contracts. They get a small pool from the playoffs. But it doesn't change the more playoff games there are. So it's just a straight, it's, it's just a straight cash grab to want to expand the playoffs at the last second, at the 11th hour. And they made the case that pushing the season back would mean hey, there's more of a chance that it'll be safer by then, given the pandemic, and there's more of a chance that we can have fans at more games so we can get better gate receipts. I mean, your mileage may vary on that argument, but it's certainly not the primary reason that the owners wanted to do this, given that they waited until a week before spring training was about to start to put this package on the table. They've had months. You You could argue, I mean, frankly, you could argue on both sides that if either side wanted to delay the season in a month like it probably wouldn't have been a bad idea but that 
conversation should have taken place months ago. Like that train has left the station. The season spring training starts in, I mean, this month. So we, it is a slap in the face to suggest that that would just change at the last second, frankly. And you completely invalidate your argument that it's about player safety or about the ability for fans to come back. Number one, when you package it along with expanded playoffs, which has nothing to do, nothing, nothing to do with safety in a pandemic or competition in a pandemic when you're playing 154 game season. You know, you'll remember, you'll recall back to last year when the owner said, let's expand the playoffs because it's 60 games. It's a small sample size. We don't want a team that had a tough 10 game stretch to get left out of the playoffs because that's not what the spirit of baseball is. That was bullshit at the time. And it's even more bullshit now when you're trying to expand the playoffs right before next year's CBA is up because you know that it's going to be a financial windfall for you as owners. Number one. Number two, you can't claim that it's about player health and player safety and fans' ability to come to the game when you just powered through last year through multiple outbreaks on multiple teams that in theory probably either threatened or actually killed multiple people in and around the sport of baseball. You can't claim that it's about player safety when you just plowed right ahead last year. So now all of a sudden, three weeks before the season is supposed to start, you care all about player safety? I, I don't I don't understand how you could look at this situation and what the owners are packaging and what they were quote-unquote willing to give up in this deal, which was universal DH, which is something that the players do want, but not at the magnitude of how badly the owners want expanded playoffs. And full 162 games salaries which that's not i don't know if you know this but they already have that yeah that's i don't know if you knew this bobby but there's a cba in place right now that actually guarantees them that which is the important part to point out about all of this is that owners are coming to table the table with these suggestions and the players association is rejecting them pretty much outright like (laughs) i mean like within the same day and not countering with anything and people are are clutching their pearls over this and really just cannot understand why the players wouldn't counter with something when the owners are operating in good faith. And that's because the players have in theory what they, what they want. Like there is no part of this deal that would actually appeal to them because they're not getting a slice of the pie of expanded playoffs money. And coming back with the proposal opens up the requirement for them to actually bargain and, and opens close up that proposal. A, yes. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Which opens up, and especially in advance of a CBA negotiation coming up later this year, frankly, they would lose a lot of leverage because expanded playoffs is a massive piece of leverage that they can actually use to garner really important concessions from owners really important like quality of life i like actually this is a way to impact the financial structure of the game if they're interested in doing that sort of thing so why would the players reject this sort of thing because there's nothing in it for them yes to to come to players saying we're going to offer you full pay for a shortened season it's like well we already have full pay so what's what's next what else is on your list That'd be like stealing my iPhone and then being like, in order to give your iPhone back, you also have to give me free lunch for the next year. It's like, what? I don't. Yeah. John Heyman tweeted, my sympathies generally lie with the players as the game is nothing without them. 
Okay, off to a good start. Okay, okay. But I don't see why the but, union... But! <laughs> but I don't see why the union, after months to think about it with a couple weeks to go, and wanting the universal DH and being offered 162 games pay for 154 games. God forbid they get overpaid eight games. Never even made one proposal. Well, first of all, fundamental lack of understanding about the value of the universal DH here. Yes, the players want it because it creates 15 more jobs, but do the players want it enough to trade it for what is largely their biggest leveraging point in that they know the owners really, really want expanded playoffs because it'll make them a lot more money? That's just not how negotiating works, number one. Number two, Heyman has dozens of people trying to explain to him what you just said about the legal requirement for bargaining between two sides of a union negotiation when you open up a proposal again. It opens the CBA back up, and then you have to resolve everything again before you can start working. If they agree to acknowledge this proposal and counteroffer, now we're in the back and forth of counteroffering that we were in last summer that everybody, including John Heyman, including Ken Rosenthal, including Jeff Passan, including every nameless fan with a Twitter egg, was bitching about for months. And the players decided not to do that and to just play under the governing rules of the collective bargaining agreement, which is legally binding for both sides under American law. And now reporters still find a way to take what MLB leaks to them and spin it for the owners. I'm just fucking sick of it, man. I'm, I like, I'm sick of reporters not understanding how bargaining and negotiating works. Why would the players set a precedent that expanded playoffs is now how we operate under ML, in, in the world of Major League Baseball right before they're about to bargain whether or not they should have expanded playoffs. Why would they do that? They, well, because, Bobby, it's their labor. We need unity. We need unity in 2021, okay? The players should do this because it's the nice thing to do. Right, right. And the owners should pay minor leaguers livable wage because it's the nice thing to do too. But we're still fucking waiting on that one. We're still fucking waiting on that one. And the owners should pay pre-arb players league-adjusted salaries, but we're still waiting on that one as well. So we're not doing the nice thing here. Sorry. And I don't know. For for major reporters to not understand that you wouldn't want to establish that precedent right before bargaining, and aside from what precedents you're establishing and leverage, because I know that that gets into hairy conversations that fans don't care about. But aside from that, opening up the can of worms that is Bargaining a CBA on the fly, which no league and no union wants to do, is just a fool's errand. They should not do that. So the players made this clean and simple. Let's go back. Let's start spring training. Let's play. And we'll deal with all of this next offseason when we have an entire offseason to negotiate the CBA because we've been planning and leading up and ramping up to that offseason to bargain that CBA. We didn't expect to have to bargain it for the two offseasons right before that as well. But that seems to be what reporters think is a good idea. It just doesn't make sense to me. It's just lazy, it's ignorant, and it's misinformed. And it's not only misinformed, it's informed from one side, which is the owners. The reason that you tweet this at 8.12 p.m. right after you find out that the players didn't counteroffer is because someone from some team side called you and was like, I can't believe the players didn't counteroffer. This is crazy. We were just trying to do our part here. Like, no, you weren't. Yeah. Sorry, if it seems like I'm worked up about this. A little bit. I'm fine. I'm fine. Okay, Okay? I'm fine. I'm pulling it back. Yeah, we. I mean, reporters just 
national baseball media does not have the due diligence that is required to uh, appropriately recover, uh, report on a situation like this. Just call an expert. It's okay to say you don't know. It's a right. John Heyman was too I, busy blocking the expert Eugene Friedman from <laughs> tweeting back at him, but fine. Uh, all right. Well, this is not the last we're going to talk about this, but at the risk of uh, of making this a three hour podcast, uh, is there is there anything else you want to you want to add on this before we move on? Um, I w- I think I would like every reporter to have to like shadow a collective bargaining agreement. <laughs> Number one, I want every reporter to read the CBA. And number two, I want them to have to either watch a documentary about how collective bargaining happens or something of that sort. Because there's just so much, like, kind of wrong stuff. And then there's so much, like, blatantly wrong stuff that it's just too many half-truths to even address for a podcast like ours that's once a week. Yeah, well, and this is why when I... I will say this in the segment that has not yet come up on this uh, podcast, but the idea of like national baseball media actually like harming the conversation around the game. Like this is what I am talking about. And it's not exclusive to one um, reporter. There are plenty of people out there who like this, like it matters how you talk about this sort of thing. And when you talk about it the wrong way, that seeps into the collective consciousness of fans. And then, and that's where you start seeing fans saying, why can't the both sides just come to an agreement? Why can't the players just come back with a fair compromise? And it's like, actually there are very clear legal reasons why they wouldn't do this. This we're operating on the compromise though. To fans who think that, why can't the players just compromise with the owners? Imagine if you compromised with your friend about whatever. Say you live with your friend, you compromise, you do the dishes, they clean the kitchen. That's it. That's your compromise for the kitchen space. And then you say, This agreement lasts the entirety of our lease. I'm gonna do all of our dishes, you're gonna clean the counter and the stove. And then Six months into the lease, your roommate comes to you and is like, I want you to keep doing the dishes and I'll keep cleaning the counter, but can you just clean the stove instead? Can Like, I'm really tired and it's hard to clean the stove. So could you just clean the stove? And then after that, you've eroded that away if you agree to that. And then they're like, I'm really tired after work. Can I clean? Can you clean the counter as well? That is what the owners are trying to do to the players. They're trying to erode them away. And you don't compromise on a compromise that you've already made with a definite term limit on that compromise. And that's what a CBA is. It's a compromise between both sides that is legally binding on the conditions that will govern a working environment. So you don't just get to come in and say, well, things changed and I feel a little differently about about this CBA than I did two and a half years ago. So can we please change it because we really want to change it and these extenuating circumstances hit? It's like, man, that is why you have a three-year limit to a CBA or that's why you have a six-year limit to a CBA or however long the baseball CBA lasts is because you renegotiate it at the end of that. You don't renegotiate it halfway through because then you get stuff like this and it frustrates everybody. But don't get it twisted which side wants to frustrate everybody. It's the owner's side that actually benefits tangibly from trying to paint the players as the bad guys. Hell yeah. 
Go off, King. Um. Okay. Uh, so anyway, uh, let's hot go. Stove. Let's go talk about the hot stove. Uh, let's not waste so much time on this because we have a really good conversation with Jen coming up. But a couple of things happened. Uh, I think we're past the forty-five minute mark by now. <laughs> Signed with the Los Angeles Dodgers after uh, it was reported by Bob Nightingale that he had signed with the New York Mets. So, I don't know, man. I don't know. I'm all out of feelings to feel about this. I mean, yeah, I don't really, I don't actually care about or have much interest talking at length about him, but I think it's um, uh, telling that even though the Mets didn't sign him, that they considered him, and that says a lot, given Steve Cohen's talk about how important culture is. Um that you know that sort of commitment to creating a positive culture only goes so far when there's the potential for actual tangible uh impact on the field yep um yeah those that is that is like the extent of my thoughts about and i think that's all we need to think (laughs) uh i'm so sad that chris davis got traded i just want to put that energy out into the world. I love Elvis Andrus. I welcome him to the Oakland days at the open arms. I know that he has been a Texas Ranger lifer, extremely good dude, but Chris Davis was, Chris Davis was that guy. And he always, uh, he, he repeatedly talked about how at home he felt in Oakland. And I mean, you know, baseball's a business players get traded. I get it. But this, uh, it hurts. And it's a little weird to be seeing your team uh, trade for a shortstop on a contract when, I don't know, a few weeks ago they declined to extend a contract to a shortstop that that you already knew, who already played for you and liked you and it was grown in... Raised in that town, I don't know. I'm. <sighs> it is weird. It's extremely weird, and uh, mostly I feel for you because losing Semyon and Chris Davis in back-to-back weeks is really tough. Because I think I think everybody is a little bit surprised at how good the A's have been for the last three years. They're obviously not running up the payroll, and. I don't necessarily think that they were one of these teams that rebuilt for a long time to the point where it was like a predetermined outcome that once the prospects got up, they had to be really good. But then it turned out that a lot of these guys turned into, in a way, like Island of Misfit Toys, like really good big leaguers. Chris Davis is a guy who, obviously low contact, but just hit dingers all day long. And he's a specific archetype of a player who's very imperfect but when things were going right was electric to watch and still could be electric to watch in Texas. And Marcus Simeon, like we talked about last week when he left is a guy who had big, big flaws in his game, especially defensively and was never really thought of to be the offensive force that he turned into, but then he did turn into it. And all of that stuff sort of coalesced with the A's in the last three or four years. And it was cool to watch. And now to have those guys leave in back to back weeks, it's just a little weird. It's like a closing of a chapter and an opening of another one with a different crop of young players like Puck and Lazardo that you're going to have to put in a completely different level of emotional investment in because they're pitchers and because there's a lot more question marks about the future of the team and you know how long, how much longer you're going to have Matt Chapman. It's just, I feel for you, my friend. 
and I will be rooting with the A's right alongside you this this season. And I hope that Elvis Andrews has a top three MVP finishing season because otherwise it's going to hurt if Marcus Simeon leaves and does really well in Toronto. I no, I hope I hope this happens. I hope I hope Chris Davis goes off in Arlington. I hope Marcus Simeon is an MVP in Toronto. There, I mean, there is there is literal precedence for an A's star going to the Toronto Blue Jays and becoming Winning an MVP. MVP. So I'm I'm fucking here for it. I I cannot tell you how much money I would spend on an Oakland A's jersey if they actually kept players around. Like here, my call to Billy Bean. I will Venmo you $200 to keep a player for more than like three years. Do you think he's listening? Yeah. Do you think $200 will be enough for that? Well, Billy... We haven't even followed up on the Billy Bean story. We the fact that he's staying that he's in Oakland. Staying. Mm-hmm. But we don't have enough time. That ends this segment of the podcast. We are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk to Jen Ramos. Okay, we are joined by Jen Ramos once again. Hello, Jen. Hey, y'all. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. How are you? It's it's been a it's been a journey. <laughs> this off season has taken us places, so many places. I just are every time a piece of news breaks, I fully expect someone to just ping our group chat with like, "What the fuck." That, you know, that is kind of the go-to. Like, no analysis, just what the fuck? Or, yeah. oh, Jesus. <laughs> that is a summation of our group chat. <laughs> like, I found out of the Kim Ang news, actually, through our group chat, because you, one of y'all just said, Kim Ang, huh? And I was like, oh, <laughs> he got hired. Didn't need any other context. Knew it immediately. That's a real peek behind the curtain into how Alex and I communicate offline, off pod, is it's just like, hmm, this happened, huh? Yeah. <laughs> and no other no further analysis. However, Jen, you are an R&D at Baseball Prospectus. Um so the the perfect place to start this conversation is your newest R&D project, Bob's Above Replacement. Do you want to explain Bob's Above Replacement for the people? Yeah, so I am basically calculating every single time Bob Nightingale has gotten it wrong, which is quite a bit because yeah. it is Bob after all, he is certainly a figure in sports media, and he has gotten it wrong a lot of the time. <laughs> Arguably, name, like like maybe more often than not. We'll find I mean, out. I suppose we're going to find out with Bob's above replacement. Well, I had at one point I had like 21 rows of data. 16 were of Bob getting it wrong. Ooh. Ooh, it's not what you want. So it's okay. sample size or I don't know. We'll see. You don't have to um, completely reveal how the sausage gets made in this sense. But how how do you go about starting a project like this? Because you are tweeting frequently about fun coding projects that you're doing in your downtime or whether it be for work or whether it be that you're trying to sharpen up your R skills or your Python skills or whatever it might be. So 
what is like the first step where you're like, I want to figure out this this silly thing that we joked about on the internet on Twitter.com. Now, how do I actually do it? The first thing I did was I scraped Bob's Twitter. Like I just collected <laughs> all of his tweets into Horrifying. a spreadsheet. And right now the program, like the code that I'm using because it's an R, it only lets me go back the past 3,200 tweets, which <laughs> that's a lot of Bob tweets already, but that's not all of it. It goes back to like last summer, I believe. It's a reasonable sample size. Um, so I collected all of that into a spreadsheet, uh, cleaned the data, only kept the relevant information that I needed, which was the news that he was trying to break and when and the date of it, it and like any relevant information. And now I am going through fact checking it. 3,200 lines of Bob data. This is this is the cutting edge of sabermetrics in 2021. I just want to say that. But Bob Nightingale is such an interesting character because, and I feel like the way that we talk about him is almost like he's not real, you know? Yeah, like, yeah. I'm not quite sure if Bob Nightingale is a f- collective figment of our imagination. Well, I was wondering, be. part of my, then my next follow-up question was going to be, you might be, the seminal expert in Bob Nightingale tweets right now, since you've lo- just looked at all 3,200 of his most recent tweets. So when he's not getting news wrong, like when he's not tweeting Bauer to the Mets, what is he tweeting about? What data were you cleaning up? Does he just like get takes off? Is he like, man, Tatis should not have swung a 3 <laughs> There are some takes. There are some takes that I'm just like, oh, Jesus. Um, some other stuff has just been like, the cleaning the data is just like, um, oh, here is the tweet ID. Here is the ID of the person he's replying to. Here's just some other metadata that I don't necessarily need for this project. Now I'm also just going through the 3,200 lines of data and making sure that it's not just him saying like, here's an article at USA Today. Yeah. I don't really need that. I'm, I'm looking more at like, did he get this contract wrong? Like. Um, and that's where I'm going through the 3,200 lines of data. It's like, okay, well, how much of this is relevant to him breaking news? But then, um, there was a few like, but it doesn't necessarily include the intangibles, such as all the other things that Bob said, such as, uh, Bauer leaving stuff at the altar. <laughs> <laughs> Wrong version of altar too, right? Didn't he spell altar wrong? Altar is like A-L-T-E-R. Oh my god. What is what consistently fascinates me about him? And I don't I don't maybe this is a take or not. I don't know. I'd love it when he starts stuff out like this. Whenever Alex says maybe this is a take or not, like this is how the whole Jersey versus Jersey thing got started. He was like, Maybe this is a take. I don't know. Jersey's better than Jersey's. And I was like, What? Is that I actually like overall think he is no more harmful to the overall baseball discourse than like a majority of other national baseball writers in yeah. that he's kind of just a flack for major league baseball communications, right? We'll kind of write an article based off of a press release and like he and Ken Rosenthal are, are like in the same boat on that one. It's just also that 
he doesn't get news right either, you know? Like, you follow Ken Rosenthal knowing that he's kind of a flack for Major League Baseball, but at least he's going to break the news first and get it right, you know? So, like, there you win some, you lose some. Bob Nightingale, I'm like, what is the, what's the redeeming factor, like, in your boss's eyes? You know, I'm not that I'm pro-boss on this podcast, but... I mean... I found an article, uh, this was just because I was making a dumb Jeff Kent washing his truck joke because someone, As one does. Because someone for the Hall of Fame had an entire ballot that was just Jeff Kent. Yeah. And I was like, did he just start like washing his truck while going about his ballot? Like, and I was like, this is such a niche joke for someone who's like a Bay Area baseball fan. So I was like, all right, I, you know what? I was a child when it happened. Let me go look up some articles. Jeff Kent is quoted in there saying, I think Mr. Nightingale is grasping at straws. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Never thought I would see the day that I would agree with Jeff Kent on something. Well, I don't. It has to just be clicks, right? It's got to be. It's got to be clicks. Because USA Today is owned by, I think, Gannett Media, which is like a big media corporation. And they are definitely just filtering it through clicks. They can't be like analyzing the the quality, the efficacy of Bob as a journalist. Like it just has to be this many people click on this dude's column. And it's probably more than anybody else that clicks on any of their baseball writers' columns. Because he has 240,000 Twitter followers. He breaks news. And sometimes it's right. <laughs> you know, sometimes it's right. I think the other thing is also people hate read it to see how many times he gets it wrong. So that's probably more clicks Mm -hmm. like what I have to do right now to verify this data. I have to click on every single link. It's the type of thing that you wouldn't care about if you didn't care about like the truth, you know, like as a, as a media company, like you didn't care about your journalists getting stuff correct. So I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe his, his news breaking that's wrong doesn't ever actually make it to print though. Maybe he just tweets it out and he never writes the story if they can't verify it. So they, they have plausible deniability about it. I don't know. This is a lot of time on Bob Nightingale. <laughs> um, I mean, Bob's above replacement, which thanks to Alex for the name because that was perfect. Of course. <laughs> it's a team effort here. Um, yeah, Jen, you're going to have to keep us Keep us posted on uh, on what comes of this project. If there are any any tweets in particular where the bar is just out of this world, you know, next level. He got the team wrong, the amount wrong, the year wrong. Uh, I'm interested. We can go deep on this. Yeah, that's actually something that Rob Arthur and I were um, tweeting about at each other last night. He said, like, I'd love to see how many possibilities were per tweet. So it's like if player X is expected to right. turn down the contract, it'd be like two possibilities, yes or yeah. no. But if it's like player X has t- signed with team Y and there were three potential bidders and three possibilities and so on. So it's like really detailed. And I told him and my and the director of R&D at Baseball Prospectus, Harry Pavlidis, I was like, I'm going to do this for science. <laughs> <laughs> Next thing you know, you're going to be like scaling it towards the rest of the league. You're like, you're going to be a league adjusted Bob's above replacement. How many did he get wrong versus how many passing got wrong? (laughs) Oh boy. That's, that's going to be a whole, whole new thing of niche analytics here. Sports media analytics. How many of them suck at their job? (laughs) 
Um, okay. Well, Bar is uh, is a work in progress. You can follow along um, on Jen's Twitter page. Uh, and here on Tipping Pitches as well. We'll bring you live updates. Um, but Jen, we wanted to uh, we wanted to talk to you um, kind of in depth uh, about the hiring of Tim Ng as the the general ma- manager for the Miami Marlins, which happened uh, in November, I think it was um, mid November, right? Yeah, and it was a real kind of watershed moment. There was a lot of discussion about it in the kind of days following. Um, and then things have kind of settled down as far as the the league wide conversation has gone. We haven't heard a lot coming out of the front office or coming out of the Marlins. Um, but she is an Asian American woman who is hired to run a, a major league baseball team. And so I'm just kind of curious. You you wrote a piece uh, for Baseball Prospectus in the in the wake of this hiring, titled "For MLB Kimming's Hiring." or Kimming's hire must be a beginning, not an end. And I, I'm kind of curious as you have taken some time to to reflect on this, um, where you stand on, I don't know, where Major League Baseball is uh, when it comes to its progressiveness. There's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, hailing of how, you know, how far we've come. Um, and not a lot of recognition that we still have a ways to go. So I kind of want to give you the floor to talk about like what this moment m- meant to you and how you're reckoning with it. For me, I mean, I am definitely glad. I mean, for so many years, it's been like, when is she going to get a GM job? Like, even though, you know, she had such a high title at MLB, like there were times I would forget that she'd said like, I want to be a GM. That's my goal. So even though like she's had such a higher position, like the goal was always GM because that is such a big moment for a woman in sports and an Asian American because there never was one before. So seeing it, I was like, oh my God, fucking finally. Like, finally, it's been way too long. She's been interviewed for so many GM jobs and has not gotten it. And I remember like watching on ESPN, like someone like interviewed her, said like, you've had like five, you know, five GM interviews. And then she was like, it's been more than that. And I was like, yeah. And that that was just telling to me how much this was a long time coming. Um, So it is very important, but the way that people have acted about it is it's as if like, this is all there is to it. And it still feels like people don't necessarily understand that this isn't the end of it. This shouldn't be the end of it. Um, Where are all the other women candidates for the future? Where are all the other Asian candidates in the future? She's only second Asian overall to have been GM, first Asian American. And that is also telling for me because like I wrote in my article, Asians aren't necessarily expected to be in sports. The stereotype is that Asians go into medicine or engineering. And that's something that I've personally felt just because I'm Asian. Um, We don't, we don't really know what the demographics are of baseball ops. We don't know anything about that because tides focuses 
on executive level positions. So we don't know like who's just like a junior R&D analyst. We don't know who's a senior R&D analyst. We only know who's like director or um, vice president or something. And that's not really telling of like who's in the pipeline to be a GM in the future. And I think that's where a lot of the problem lies is that no one is trying to see who's next. Yeah. Well, the word you, the word you use there, pipeline, which is obviously a big word in the baseball world for for prospects and for getting hired at the executive level. Um, I want to talk about the idea of that pipeline, though, because you know Kim Ang is obviously a success story in that she is the first woman to become a GM, but it it was so hard for her and. I think going forward, we can't just expect that now that the glass ceiling has been broken, so to speak, or now that, you know, that barrier has been knocked down, that this just means that like a million other women are going to get the chance to interview and be hired. I think now we have just seen that this is what it takes to get to that point. And for other men, maybe who have gone to Harvard and who have stepped into baseball and decided to change their career path and approach it they've got they've they've sidestepped some of these requirements that other people would be required to go through in order just to get an interview for these jobs and then kim ang on top of that had to get seven interviews for these jobs just to get one so i'm wondering like from you know from your experience knowing how baseball ops works a little bit better than even us or certainly a lot better than a lot of our listeners know it kind of what like the pathway up there is to get to senior levels in baseball ops R&D and then from that point to establish a resume that even would consider you to be at the top of a front office in an assistant GM or GM role. It's a lot. I mean, I applied for a lot of baseball ops jobs about a year and a half after finishing grad school. It was still a very very tedious process because trying to apply for these jobs with a, a year and a half out of grad school with indie ball AGM experience, I was still applying at the intern level. Yeah. And wow. <laughs> wow. That was tough. That's unbelievable. And I, maybe it's because like in indie ball AGMs have to do like a bunch of different work. Like you're doing, I was doing basically three jobs, three or four jobs as AGM. Um, but when you're trying to go into MLB, like you almost have to start new. And I was up for the diversity fellowship. I had applied for that. And that was also such a grueling process that I don't think gets talked about a lot because like you have to be at least less than two years out of school. You have to finish recently. Like there's an academic requirement to it, which I feel is another gatekeeping aspect. Like there's a lot of people who know baseball without having to go to college. There's a lot of people who can teach themselves how to program. There's a lot of people who have played baseball and just know the sport and don't really need to go to school to know more. College isn't for everyone. So like the diversity fellowship in itself was gatekeeping because it needed every single one of my transcripts. And I was just like, this is ridiculous. I had to pay for my transcripts just to apply for a fellowship that is designed for marginalized people. Yeah. And I was like, this is short. Okay, fine. And that process on its own was 
also just strange because I remember getting a rejection from the Cubs out of nowhere and I had no idea what it was for because I never applied for anything with the Cubs. And I was like, this is probably the fellowship, I guess. But there wasn't really any other information for it. I didn't even know that I was being considered as the Cubs fellow. Like, no transparency there. No idea what's going on there. The fact that that alone is the process for marginalized people in sports, like not sports, but like MLB in general, but that feels telling of the process that I don't even know where I stand in the job hunting process trying to get through the door. I remember trying to email a bunch of GMs, executives saying like, hey, here's my resume. Basically pretending that I have the confidence of an over over-enthusiastic, underqualified white man and being like, hey, here's my resume. Listen to me. I was at Sabre Seminar in 2017 trying to shake hands with executives. Me with giant social anxiety pushing myself out there saying like, I can be a valuable asset to your team. No call back. Nothing. I even said to Rick Hahn and I emailed him. I found the email recently saying like, hey, I know player development. I know analytics. Here's a way you can do player development analytics. I know it. You should hire me. Nothing. And now they're creating a bunch of roles in player development analytics, which is a completely new thing that didn't exist when I emailed them. So I'm like, what's the deal? Like, I know this sport so well that I was like, I can do player development analytics before they were looking for roles in a wide manner. That's also, that feels like the kind of story you hear um, as like a, you know, underdog success story, like a, like a guy, like just out of high school on a whim emails, a GM uh, being like, Hey, I'm a huge Cubs fan. And also I'm really smart. Like I want to, you know, work for you guys or whatever. And the GM like takes pity or is like, Oh, I see passion in you. Like I want to bring you under my wing or something. And in reality, those opportunities just don't don't exist for majority of people. I mean the the clearest example of of that was the Mets GM searched like three or four years ago when they were considering Kimming and went with one Brody Van Wagenen instead, noted player agent who had never literally never been in a major league front office before, right? And that's telling. And you write a lot about, um, you know, the kind of myth of perseverance as, as you know, Kimming's hiring is the perfect representation that if you work hard enough for anything, like those good things will come. And it seems to me, and what you write about is, it's actually the exact opposite. It's, it's a show of she worked harder than pretty much anyone else in a major league front office and it still took her 20 20 plus years to actually get to the place where she is now um and to get over the top it still took you know by the reporting it still took a personal relationship given she earned that personal relationship by being with the Yankees for so long and knowing Derek Jeter the way that she does but it still takes kind of that connection at the very last level and it's not just straight up this is my resume it's 
this is my resume on top of the fact that you know that this is my resume, right? It, it, there's like a slight distinction there that doesn't quite make it as clean of a perseverance story as it was sold to be in a lot of places. Pretty much. And I think that's that's also the thing. It's like even even for someone with a resume that long, for someone who's been in MLB since 1990, like that's over 30 years now, like she still had to know someone to get where she is. And that also just kind of reaffirms how MLB is like, you got, you still got to know someone to get through the door and you're not really judging someone by their ability. You're not judging someone by, what they can bring to the table. They still have to know someone. And that's why, like, for me, you're like, after everything that I went through with the application process, I decided, you know what, this isn't a space for me because I personally cannot take it. I'm perfectly fine working as part of the R&D team with Baseball Prospectus. I have a career that I do love a lot. But, like, now this is why I'm like, I have so many contacts built up in MLB. I will share those with anyone who's a marginalized person. That's why, like, I try to create opportunities for people to try and get through the door or at least network with people so that they have a better chance than I did. And that's also kind of telling, like, I worked at, I work at Baseball Prospectus. Like, I have the experience. I've helped program things there. I've written a lot of analysis. I do prospect stuff. And I still can't get through the door in MLB. Like there's, it's really telling. And I remember having a conversation with someone like, it's not just Kim, Kim Ang being a woman having a hard time. It's also like her being not white playing a role into it. And it's like, you know, like, like I wrote in my piece, like being an Asian American woman, you get, you get stereotyped into two roles, either the submissive woman or like the dragon lady. And that, can go either way. And when you're thinking about all of those things combined, like it becomes a lot harder. And that's why for me, as someone who's Asian and someone who's femme non-binary, like I could relate to that a lot. And I've even met Kim Ang once at the, at the trailblazer series of all places where that's supposed to be a breakthrough places for women. Like, and like I told her, like she's someone I look up to because I don't see a lot of Asian women femmes in such high positions in MLB. And that alone should be telling for people. Like who who do people have to look at their like me, like seeing that it took so long for her to get to where she is. I was like, I don't have the capacity to wait 30 years to get to the role that I want to get to. Zooming out a little bit, um, because there is a lot that has happened this off season, just generally speaking. <laughs> um, and specifically I'm thinking over the last few weeks, the stories that have come out um, about powerful men in baseball abusing their position to prey on women, essentially. Um, and it's hard for me to separate these two stories in my head, one of a woman who persevered and took 30 years to, to get to the place where she is right now and, and to be a really singular figure in that 
And then also to hear these stories about men who are essentially doing everything they can to scare women and non-men out of baseball, right? Like, I don't know. I'm I'm curious your your read on this because it's hard for me to think that like one doesn't lead to the other. You know, if there is a, a culture of rampant harassment that you know that that is not tied to the fact that uh, women are I, I I I can't even say underrepresented. I would say not represented in in baseball front offices at all. Really, I mean, pr- up until the point of this Kimming hiring. Uh, and so I, how do you kind of contextualize her hiring in this larger story, this, this kind of underbelly of major league baseball that has basically allowed a culture of abuse to, to run wild. And I'm sure that it won't be the last story that, that we hear. I mean, one of the things that I'm thinking of a lot right now is how Aang herself was harassed like by a scout saying like, where are you really from? Which is, you know, one of the more common racist things that Asians get a lot. Like where, where are you really from? You say you're from the States, but like where really? And like, to me, that's very telling because like she was already in a pretty big role at that point and she's still getting harassed that. And that was okay. No one really said like, Hey, don't do that. She kind of, from my understanding, was like kind of just left there to deal with it. You know, she was just at winter meetings, I believe, and just trying to go about a conversation as people do at winter meetings. And then she gets faced with this harassment, this racist harassment. And the fact that no one really said like, hey, don't do that. You shouldn't do that for someone to anyone, but also like, look who you're talking to, like someone who's an executive at this point. Like the fact that a lot of men think that they can get away with saying that just because they see someone in the baseball sphere that they can harass, it just goes unchecked. And I think that's that's also telling because I have seen so many women on Twitter saying like, hire more women. This will stop if you hire more women. That's not going to do anything. This is a problem that has been in the root of MLB. Like, they have so many problems as a whole. So, like, of course, it does not surprise me that harassment and abuse exists in MLB because the culture that has been fostered since the beginning allows for this. It's gone unchecked. And that's why I also think with, like, the Porter and the Callaway stuff, it doesn't surprise me at all because it happens to literally everyone who's not a cis white man. And I mean, as a reporter myself, I've experienced a ton of it. And like, I haven't said much of anything because one, not white, two, not cis. Not really safe for me to try and really name people without a lot of retribution because what am I going to do? I live in, like, sure, I live in California, big place, but like, I have a lot of work out there. Everyone knows that I cover the California League. I don't want to feel unsafe. And, you know, there's no environment where you can even report 
or privately saying like, hey, this happened. I need you to step up and do something so that I'm safe, but also this person doesn't harass or abuse again. And that's not what we're seeing. People think that hiring more women will be the answer. It's not going to be the answer if the culture is still always going to be there. And women can also be part of the problem. See, Rachel Luba. (laughs) So, you know, I get really frustrated when people think that hiring more women is the answer because that just feels like hiring more women prison guards. Yeah, I I think a lot. Well, I think something that we talk about in the world of baseball a lot is toxic masculinity, right? And most of the time that applies to men. But really what it means is that it it applies to the culture that was built. And toxic masculinity on the field plays out as beanball or yelling at each other about bat flips or whatever. But, you know, when, when Bauman was on the show a few weeks ago, he said systems function as they were built to function. And in this case, this fun- this boys club, which we the moniker that we throw at Major League Baseball all of the time. Actually, there's an, if you peel one layer back of that, it's just toxic masculinity and it just allows stuff like this to go on. And I mean, as a matter of practice, it actually kind of encourages stuff like this to go on because that's the way that it's been happening for its entire existence. And therefore, I don't know how you... I don't know exactly how you root something like that out, but it's it, what you're saying, Jen, is completely right. It's not just hiring more women to pull to 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 operate the levers of the toxic masculine system. It's actually changing those levers and changing how the power is distributed within organizations and what that community actually looks like. I, I don't know what any of those things look like on a policy level, but then again, I'm not the commissioner of baseball. It's not my job to figure out how to change that <laughs> stuff, you know? I think about that a lot also with the Porter story. The fact that like, you know, there was someone from the Cubs just also kind of like trying to push it aside, trying to get the victim to like not really do anything. But then I also think about how the victim in that story is not from the States, not a native English speaker, not white. Like it's not just toxic masculinity here. That's also the systemic racism at play that like Porter was preying on someone who doesn't, you know, doesn't have the same advantages in the states because again not not native english speaker not a citizen of the states there's a lot that go into play there and you know obviously you know non-white women are a lot more vulnerable in these situations too because people treat them a lot more differently than they do white women because there's still the whiteness there and when you combine the toxic masculinity and the systemic racism that's when you get a situation like Porter happening because the norms are different there's the cultural disconnect between what's going on there there's also the well not necessarily cultural disconnect I guess I what I'm trying to say is like there's a divide in the cultures there like you don't necessarily have the same inherent understanding of what a culture is because you're in a different country. And then you've also got the different power structure there. Porter was already higher ranked than this reporter coming in from a different country. When you look at all of that, you're seeing every single horrible system in MLB at play. And that is where the problem is. And the fact that there was someone who was trying to cover it up, trying to push it aside, that's where a lot of problem is there's no accountability it's just enabling this problem and i think that like even on a smaller scale teams can't teams and 
as a whole can step up to say like, hey, you, you were doing that. You should not do that. Like just the accountability doesn't exist. Because these people are all buddies. They're all friends, right? You see something happen. You see a friend of yours get outed and you say, oh, well, I I know him, right? He's he He doesn't mean this. He's a good guy, ultimately. I've never and seen him do anything like this. I can't believe he's done something like this. As if, as if there are not plenty of qualified candidates out there to fill these roles. As if it would not be so easy to cut bait with anyone who even remotely tries to leverage their power uh, over someone who has less power than them. It would be, there are thousands of qualified people who could actually take their place, but just aren't, but are being overlooked, who aren't getting their their emails returned, even though they have the the R&D experience in baseball that that it all requires. So here we are. And I think about that a lot too, because there was one time I interviewed for a team, the entire interview process, I was trying to say like, look, I know my background is in journalism and in English. And even though like my degree, my master's is in journalism. I did data journalism. I can, I know how to communicate statistics to a lot of different people on layman's terms. I have this experience. I can bring value. Like I, I can, you know, try and figure out like, what does this stat mean? And relay it from the analytics department to on-field staff. This team only wanted to hear about what my experience was at USC. I wasn't even there for a full, for more than a year. I was in a nine-month program to get my master's. And they just wanted to know what I did at USC. And I was like, why are you focusing on that and not what I can bring to the table? That just also kind of tells me they really just want the credentials. Right. That's... That's very illuminating because, you know, you brought up Brody Van Wagen and obviously this was, as Alex said, like a, a stellar example of some, a, a white guy walt- with relationships waltzing in and getting the job over Kim Ang, who turns out to be, who obviously at the time was much more qualified and would have done a better job given how everything went with Brody Van Wagen. However, something that was interesting at the time was at least it came from a slightly different career path rather than Harvard guy goes get some cushy job in baseball development or as like a consultant to the baseball ops team or whatever and then steps into the role as like lead scout and then steps into the role as assistant GM and then steps into the role as GM. Like it was a slightly different path. And I just wish that baseball was not so set down its its pipelines to bring it back to that word, because of exactly what you're saying, Jen, in that when you rely only on these very specific pipelines where they're only, they only care about where, that you went to USC, or they only care that you went to Yale and you studied math and econ, and, or they only care that you did, you know, you were part of the scouting team for the Diamondbacks or whatever, then like, what comes along with that are all of the naturally exclusionary pieces of having to get into all of those programs too, as opposed to them valuing like your journalism experience and therefore like opening it up to a completely wider group of candidates that can then get the job and 
or seriously be considered for the job at least. Yeah. And I think that's kind of just illuminating how much of the system MLB has set up is a problem. Like they set it up in this way on purpose. And I think that's the thing. People are always like, oh, the system in MLB is broken. No, it's working as designed is the thing. And like, that's why you got to tear down the system and build something else that's not like this because this is just a giant shit show. To put it simply, it's a shit show. Like we, this off season alone has illuminated how much that is a problem. And I think it's, I mean, none of this is good, obviously, but it's, I, I am heartened that I'm seeing more people actually kind of waking up to a lot of this, uh, like just how screwed up the system is, how screwed up um, it it treats it, its treatment of basically a majority of its consumer base and its employees. How how messed up all that is. So, I. Yeah, I don't know what that change looks like, but it starts right here <laughs> on tipping pitches. Um, yeah, I, I, incredibly important point to end on that the system is functioning exactly how it was designed to. And until we start asking the right questions about how to change that system, it's just going to continue to function exactly the same. Um, okay, Jen, I want to give you one last, I want to give you another chance to plug anywhere people can find the stuff that you're working on where they're going to be able to find Bob's Above Replacement once it actually hits the airwaves. Um, we'll obviously have you back on to talk about it once we have a conclusion. But um, anything else that you're working on that is um, slightly less defeating than the last 20 minutes of the conversation that we've had? Um, well, one more defeating is that I have a Patreon newsletter that is basically criticizing sports media for everything that is getting wrong, such as uh, how they've done the coverage of Rachel Luba prior to the Bauer signing and I was like no accountability no critical thinking good stuff just um, vibes no critical thinking just vibes <laughs> that's pretty much baseball media in a nutshell these days yeah <laughs> um so it's sports media in general but because I you know focus on baseball I write about that a lot but I also have hockey experience so i'm pretty sure i'll get into hockey at some point but in general there's a lot of uh, sports media that's not even following the spj code of ethics i'm like have you even read how to minimize harm so that's one thing that i'm working on on the side um otherwise i'm still baseball prospectus um we just released the 2021 annual so get a copy of that um working on the prospect side and the R&D side. I have an essay in the 2021 Futures Guide, which is kind of like our version of the prospect handbook that's coming out, I believe, at the end of the month. Um, Pre-orders are available online as well. So plugging those two books. At Jen Mac Ramos on Twitter. Everyone go smash that follow button. Jen, thank you so much. Of course. Always glad to be on. Okay. Thank you, Jen. Thank you to Bob Nightingale. Thank you to John Heyman. Thank you to you, Alex. And thank you to everyone who called in. Oh, yes. Just incredible. 
I know that segment was quite literally an hour ago. Um, <laughs> but uh, please, any any gripes you have, any grievances you have, or again, if you're just feeling joy about your baseball team, if you're like my team just signed my favorite baseball player, my team just signed Sean Doolittle, whatever it is, please, please, please hit our line. We want to hear that. With all your takes, all your anger, all your joy, seven eight five four two two five eight eight one. We're here. We're listening. And if you don't feel like calling in, you can send an email to pingpitchespod at gmail.com or a DM tipping underscore pitches and Alex will read it on the pod. I really feel like people are underutilizing that point of it. Alex yeah. will read it. Mm-hmm. In those beautiful dulcet tones. He'll take any character, actor, voice that you want him to take. And right, read exactly. it on the pod. If, you, if you put at the beginning must be read like Ben Shapiro, I'll do it. He's really good at Ben Shapiro. M- maybe <laughs> Donald Duck? Mickey Mouse? <laughs> this is dark. We're getting into dark territory here. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. We will be back next Monday in your feeds. We'll see you then. Everybody. Uh, I'm Alex Rodriguez. Tipping pitches. This is the one that I love the most. So we'll see you next week. See ya!